Glad to be with you guys this morning. If you don't know, Fudd and Christy had their baby. Number 73, Chambers Child. So, no, it's just six. It's just six. They've, uh, they had their, they, everybody is doing well. They're doing real well. Um, Christy and the baby doing good. Fudd's still alive. So, you know, things are, things are good. They, uh, um, we're a little bit out of a uh, little bit out of order. We were technically supposed to start this mini part of the series last week, um, but because of you know the eager expectation of the child to be born, we kind of got a little bit out of order. So we're getting back on track this morning. We are starting the uh, small mini series in our journey series called uh, "The Place of the Skull." Now, if you if you've been in church, if you grew up in church, you may be familiar with this idea—the idea of Golgotha, the place of the skull. It is the the place where Jesus was crucified. There's a, a mountain, kind of a high hill outside of Jerusalem. That when you look at it, it looks looks like a skull, and it's the place where the Romans would crucify people. And so, Golgotha is the place, the the physical place where Jesus was crucified. And we we called it this because. We're in the Gospel of Luke this month, so all of our sermons for August will be coming from the Gospel of Luke. One thing that is different is we won't technically get to the crucifixion narratives in August. If you're reading along with us in the journey, you may have realized that that next month is when we'll get to the actual crucifixion narratives. Um, and the reason why we still called it the place of the skull was because in Luke 9, 51, uh, we read this. It's about Jesus. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And, and, and all the scholars and commentators and people who really studied the book of Luke agree that in Luke 9, with that passage, there's a turning point in the book of Luke. Before that, it's spoken of Jesus' birth, the beginning of his ministry, all that's going on. And in Luke 9, when Jesus sets his face to go towards Jerusalem, there's a turning point. Everything then from that point on is focused on Jesus going to the cross to give himself for everyone who would believe. All who will place their faith in him. This is all about Jesus going to the cross to offer himself as a sacrifice. Which, by the way, I think that so ties in well with a line from the song that we just sang. Uh, There's a line in that song that says, In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Sometimes we're guilty of just singing songs that have a more poetic line and we just sing it. We don't really know what that means. What, what is it talking about? And the picture there is this, this, this picture of back in the Old Testament, the high priest once a year would go into the holiest place in the temple and they would tie bells around his feet and a rope around an ankle. The bells were so that they could hear him moving around, and the rope was in case everything wasn't right, and if he was not completely set apart and not completely holy, when he walked in there, God could strike him dead, and he goes in there to offer a sacrifice for all the people once a year. And if God struck him dead, they'd pull him out by the rope because nobody would go in there after him. And this picture of our anchor holding within the veil. There was this big veil that separated it so you couldn't see in there, you couldn't go in there. The picture is not a high priest going and offering a sacrifice, but Jesus himself walking into the holiest place and not giving the blood of an animal, but his own blood for us. 
And now he is in the presence of God. And no matter what comes our way in life, no matter what storm we face, no matter what tribulation, no matter what trial, Jesus has secured for us in the holiest place salvation and security no matter what. That's a great verse in that song. Christ has secured it for us. And like an anchor that holds the ship in the midst of a storm so that it doesn't get battered or lost or destroyed, Jesus holds us firm because of what he's done for us. That's the place of the skull. Jesus has turned his eyes towards Jerusalem so that he might give himself for us. And as he does, he holds us firm. So that's why we're going with this idea of the place of the skull. Um, This... This morning, uh, our passage is Luke chapter 16. So if you've already turned there, good. If you haven't, uh, Luke chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible and didn't bring one or don't own one, there may be one under the row in front of you. There should be one there. If you don't own one, keep that. That's our gift to you. Um, But we'll be in Luke chapter 16, and I say this all the time. If you don't know where Luke is, there's no shame in the table of contents. That's what it's there for. So there's no judgment. Look in the table of contents, you can find the book of Luke. Now, we're going to be in a, very, in a more difficult passage this morning. And, and this is the, the fifth sermon that I've preached in the Journey series. And I got back and looking at them and I realized that of the five, I think I've started out at least three of them saying, this is a tough passage. Um, so I don't know if I'm just weird, glutton for punishment, or the Lord just, you know, wants me to study harder. I'm not sure what's going on. But it just got me thinking about the fact that, you know, there's some tough things in the Bible. There's some things that are just hard to understand. There's some things that we, it would just be easy not to study, not to, not to plow into. And it made me ask the question, why? why? Why didn't God just make the Bible so that everything was super easy to understand? Why didn't God just make it so that every time you read it, it was, just, it was perfectly crystal clear? Why are there things that are hard? Why are there things that seem to not make sense? Why are there things that we have to really dig into? And sometimes we, even as much as we dig, we don't understand. Why would God put those things there? And so before I really get started in our text this morning, I want to share with you a few reasons why I think God puts things like this in the Bible. Um, And I hope it will be an encouragement and a challenge to you um, as you encounter these things, because you will encounter them. Um, First thing, I think God puts tough passages in the Bible to remind us of our finiteness, literally our smallness. Sometimes we kind of get a big head or we start thinking more about ourselves than we should. And so when we come to these places in Scripture, we are reminded that God is all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful. He is the creator. We are the created. He is our father. We are his children. And so sometimes God puts this in there and it brings us back down to that recognition of who God is and his magnitude and our smallness. Isaiah 55, verses eight and nine. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Sometimes we just need passages to humble us before God. Closely tied to that, I think God gives us hard passages for the second reason, to remind us of our need of the Holy Spirit. You see, it's the Holy Spirit who inspired the Scriptures. It's the Holy Spirit who guards the Scriptures. It's the Holy Spirit who makes sure nothing is written that doesn't need to be written and everything that does need to be written is written. And sometimes we will go to the Scriptures in our own power and not in the power of the Spirit. 
Ephesians 1, this is what Paul prays for the the believers in Ephesus. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul is praying for these believers that God would give them the Spirit to open their eyes, to help them to see wisdom and revelation. And so the idea here for us as we're looking at this, we're saying sometimes these tough passages remind us that we need the Holy Spirit to make it clear to us. And the joy of that is if you are a follower of Christ, the Bible says His Spirit resides in you. His spirit is there. The same spirit who inspired the scriptures lives in you and will make them clear to you. So these are a reminder of that. Third thing in this, and this was a really tough one for me. Um, Sometimes I think God puts hard passages in the scripture to reveal our laziness. And what I mean by that is this. Uh, There was a guy who came to Jesus um, and he said, Matthew 22, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind. Now, for me, sometimes the heart and soul aspect are the easy parts, the parts that I focus on more. The, the, the affections for Jesus, the desires for Jesus, the, all of those things. But sometimes the loving God with my mind, that's really entailed as we take our mind and put it to understanding the scriptures. So many times we'll spend much more brain energy and effort trying to figure out how to rearrange the furniture in our living room or figure out a problem at work. But when we open the scriptures and it's difficult, we just say, oh, I can't do that. Oh, I can't understand this. Let us take our minds and love God with our minds and use it. And what it could be is a a tough passage may reveal to you or it may reveal to me where I'm simply being lazy and not willing to love God genuinely with my mind and struggle with it. Fourth thing is this, it drives us to pray. So I hope you can see how these are all kind of interconnected here. It shows us our smallness. It shows us our need for the spirit. Maybe we're being lazy. So what does that do? It drives us to pray. Psalm 119, the psalmist says, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. So even the psalmist here is praying, God, help me to understand so that I can obey. And then the last one I think is this, and and this one, sometimes we really overlook this one. I think God puts hard passages in the Bible to increase our joy, our joy in him. Proverbs chapter 2 says something very interesting. It says this. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you will call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth, come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path, for wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. 
You see, sometimes we, we think hard passages. We think, well, they're really, they're, there's nothing there. It's too much to understand. And sometimes as God gives us these difficult passages and we realize, God, I am, I am small. I need your spirit. I pray that you would help me not to be lazy, but to really seek this. And as we dive into it and God and his goodness makes it clear what he's trying to say, there is a joy that comes inside of us because we know we have, we have been with God. And he has spoken to us. And that's so much greater than anything else. So what I want to encourage you with is when you come to difficult passages, remember this. Don't be afraid of them. The Spirit is with you. He will open your eyes to understand. He will give knowledge and understanding. Cry out. Seek it like silver and gold. And you will get it. It will be a joy to your soul. So that being said, we're going we're gonna to jump into our passage this morning. Um, by the way, you're not in bad company if you have a hard time understanding the Bible. In uh, 2 Peter, Paul, Peter talks about Paul's writings. And he says they're good, and he says they're hard to understand. So Peter had a hard time understanding the Bible too, for what it's worth, all right? But we do remember Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, but those things that are revealed belong to us and to our children that we might live by this law of the Lord all of our days. The revealed things belong to us. God has given them to us in his goodness. He didn't give them so we couldn't understand them and couldn't follow them. So that being said, let's read Luke chapter 16. This may not be a difficult passage for some of you, but it was for me. So we're going to read it and then we're going to pray. Luke chapter 16, we're going to be verses 1 through 13. This is Jesus talking. This is what he says. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses." So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. He said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for the truth that it is, for giving it to us. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we would see and we would savor the beauty of your word, and that it would move us to response and obedience. We ask all this for the glory of Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, I have to admit that as I read this parable, 
there are some seeming strange things about it. So there's a rich man who has a manager. Manager is somebody who is in charge of all of his goods and money, okay? So he's got all this stuff and he gives it all to this manager and this manager is supposed to take care of it all. Well, it comes to his attention that the manager is wasting everything. We don't know exactly what he's, how he's wasting it, what he's doing, but he's wasting everything. And the rich man finds out about it and he's not very happy. So he calls the guy in and he says, what's this I hear about you wasting all of my stuff? You need to get all the books and everything together. Bring them to me because you're fired. And so then the manager goes, what am I going to do? I uh, definitely can't do manual labor, and there's no way I'm too proud to beg. So I've got to find a way to be able to survive after this, because I'm not going to have any money, and there's nothing I can get. So the guy comes up with a plan. He's like, I know what I'll do. I'll call up everybody who owes something to my master, and I'll write in the books a reduced debt then they won't have to pay so much and they'll be very happy that I did that. So then when I need something, they'll take care of me because they didn't have to give so much to my master. So that's what he does. He calls the one guy in with oil. How much do you owe? 100. Okay, write 50. How much do you owe in wheat? 100 and write 80. Okay. And then, like this is the way, like I'm, I'm tracking with this so far. Okay, I, I'm get this. I see the story. And then I expect when I'm reading verse eight, I'm expecting it to say, Then the master was severely angry with the manager and kicked him out and took away everything that he had. Well, what does verse 8 say? The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Is there anybody else that that just seems a strange ending to the parable? Like this guy had cheated his master, wasted all of his money, then he cheated him out of what he owed And the guy goes, man, that was real shrewd of you. Good job on that one. (laughs) What in the world? I don't, I don't, I don't get it. Like, I I read this. I remember I read it. um, I knew that I was going to be preaching this week. So I was kind of reading ahead in the journey. And I remember reading this and I was like, man, I have never understood what this is really all about. So that's part of the reason why I said, okay, well, I'll preach from this text then. Because, because I want to know what it's all about. So I get to spend some extra time studying it. Now, what we have to keep in mind as we go to remember this is we have to remember what a parable is, okay? A parable is a story that's told to teach a point. Maybe every now and then more than one point, but for the most part, a parable is a story that is told to teach a point, It's not necessarily a historic story. So it's not like Jesus was like, hey man, one day, let me tell you about this guy that I met. That's not what he's doing. Jesus is telling a story. This may have never happened, may not have ever been a possibility, but Jesus tells this story to teach a point. And sometimes when we have difficulty, one of the difficulties we face is that we want to try to do a one-to-one correlation of people in the parable. So we're like, okay, so the rich man must be, be God, and then the, the, the manager is the guy who is like a servant of God, but he's not doing good, but then the people that owe God money are the, uh, and we just kind of get really lost in that, and what Jesus is not trying to do is give us this one-to-one correlation we figure who everybody represents, and we know that because of the way that Jesus transitions at the end of the story. And really, there's two verses that help us to understand kind of two different things about this parable that really help unpack the meaning for us. The first really is verse 8, okay? Now, that's the verse that I said to me just seems really out of place because it says, the master commended the dishonest manager 
for his shrewdness. Now, if you're not sure what shrewd means, it means showing sharp powers of judgment. So this guy had some discernment. He knew something was about to happen, so he changed the outcome. He, he saw, he discerned what was going to happen, so he did something different, okay? That's what he commends him on. But then look what Jesus says for his shrewdness, period. That's the end of the parable. That's it. That's the end of the parable. And Jesus says, for, now what he's doing, he's, he's making a turn, commending for his shrewdness, for, and now he's like, I'm done with the story. Let me start explaining it to you. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And so our first clue as to what Jesus is doing here is that he's using this manager as an example. Not an example to be followed, but as an example of how people who are the sons of this world, meaning people who care nothing about God, only living for themselves, only living for this world and not for eternity. Jesus says the sons of this world are shrewd in the way that they deal with each other and he contrasts it with the sons of light. He gives this guy as an example of somebody who cares nothing about God and in giving this example, what he shows is this guy wrongly used what was entrusted to him to take care of his future, right? So what happened? He was go- he'd been messing around. He was going to get fired. He didn't want to go dig ditches. He didn't want to beg. He said, I got to find a way to make sure my future is taken care of. So what am I going to do? Well, if I just cook the books a little bit, I'll be okay. And that's what happened. So Jesus says, you see, the sons of this world are more shrewd in the way they approach money. Because they understand that they need their money to do something for the future. And really that, what that does is it pulls out then the sons of light aren't as shrewd with the way they use their money. And Jesus isn't saying that we need to start cheating people so that our future is taken care of. But he uses this guy as an example to help us see that those of this world use what they have to look out for temporal future better than those who are not of this world, use their money to look out for their eternal future. And see, it feeds into verse 9, which really is the second key to understanding this passage. So in verse 8, we understand why Jesus has given us this guy. And then in verse 9, we understand what Jesus wants us to learn. Verse 9, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, I really, again, question here. What in the world is making friends with money? How does that relate to being received into eternal dwellings? Now, Jesus is, again, he's, he's paralleling this parable a little bit, not calling us to do the one-to-one, but helping us to see. He's given this guy as an example, and he's saying he's doing everything he can to make sure his future is taken care of. And he says, we too should be using our money with an eye towards eternity. One of the good things about doing the journey the way that we're doing, if, you, if you've not been here before, we're doing this year-long reading through the Bible. Um, and each, with six days a week, we have a reading, and then Sunday we preach from one of the passages that we read from this past week. Um, and right now, this month, we're reading... Um, we're reading in Luke, we're reading in First and Second Timothy, we're reading in Proverbs, and we're reading in Nehemiah. 
Um, and one of the, the cool things is that every now and then, it happens more often than not, those passages end up speaking about some of the same things. And this week as I was studying, it really amazed me that one of the passages from all four of those readings really hit home on the same idea. So for instance, the, this week on the day that we read Luke 16, 1 through 10, we also read 1 Timothy 6, verses 11 through 21. They were on the same day. And in verses 17 through 19, Paul writes this. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides for us everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And I don't know if you caught some of the parallels to what Jesus is saying and what Paul is writing to Timothy, but notice what he says. Paul says, tell the rich not to set their hope on their riches, but their hopes on Jesus. And as they set their hopes on Jesus, they're going to use their money in such a way that they are storing up treasures for themselves in heaven, not merely on earth. There is an eternal perspective on money that both Jesus and Paul is, are putting before us. This message is that those who have been redeemed by Christ view money differently. Not as a way to buy themselves into heaven. Not as a way to lord it over someone else. But as an understanding that which God has given us is to be used to show everyone that God is glorious and great, greater than his gifts. John Calvin was commenting on this passage and he said, the leading object of this parable is to show that we ought to deal kindly and generously with our neighbors, that when we come to the judgment seat of God, we may reap the fruit of liberality. In other words, we're not using our money to avoid God's judgment. We're using our money to please God. Not to please him in order that he would accept us, but we're using it in the sense that we want our attitude, our thoughts, and our physical usage of money to be done in such a way that God is pleased with our obedience and with our gospel-mindedness, with our, our thoughts on Jesus, so that as I approach my bank account and the amount or lack of amount therein, I want to say, this has been given to me by God to be used and not just used to make me more comfortable, to make my life better. God has entrusted me with this so that I might use it to glorify him. We're going to unpack that a little bit more as we start going, as we keep going. Now, it's interesting because Proverbs 10.2 says, Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit but righteousness delivers from death. Again, so here's the idea. Money isn't going to deliver you. Righteousness does. And then this morning I read Proverbs eleven four: Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. All of this is all coming in together. All these readings are reminding us that money is something people tend to trust in and find security in. And Jesus says, it's nothing. It will fail you, but I won't. And if I won't fail you, and I'm the one who's entrusted you with this, shouldn't you deal with it the way that I say you should deal with it? 
See, the way that we view and use money reveals a good deal about our hearts. Earlier in 1 Timothy 6, Paul wrote this, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Can I just stop there? The Bible doesn't say money is the root of all evil. Okay? That's an Americanism. That's a twisting of the Bible. The Bible says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, okay? The root of all evil is the sinfulness in our hearts. That's the root of evil. Money just gives you an opportunity to put it on display. Money's not the root of all evil. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I've got to stop here for a second because here's the danger. The danger for a lot of people who go to church on a regular basis, is we kind of categorize things. And some things are uber important. They're, they're massive. They're the ones we've got to take care of. And the other ones are just kind of, we treat them as if they're, they're, they're nice things that we could try to worry about, maybe kind of sort of, and do some. Paul writes here that there are some people who begin following Jesus And because they loved money, they left the faith. If you don't think that the love of money or the wrong thinking about money is dangerous to your soul, you are already got one foot on the path. Everything is a big deal. I mean, we're learning about this in all different places in the scriptures. We, we've got to understand, and I'm not being melodramatic here. Paul is saying some have wandered from their faith and, and stuck themselves with many pangs because they love money. They have exchanged Jesus for the almighty dollar. It's a big deal. It's a big deal, and we can't treat it lightly. Because if we do, we're in grave danger of doing the very thing Paul warns against right here. That's why, that's why as a pastor, it's, it's my job, to, even though it's sometimes really uncomfortable to talk about things like money. If I love you, I'll tell you what the Bible says to warn you and to increase your joy in Jesus. This really ties in directly with what Jesus says in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate one and love the other. He will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. If you grew up reading King James, maybe you read King James right now, you cannot serve God and mammon. You may have heard the word mammon. It's uh, it's an Aramaic word that means not just money, but money and possessions, all of that in there together. Jesus said, you can't serve God and money. So Jesus uses this wicked man to draw us in the reality that we as believers should be wise and even righteously shrewd in the way we use our money for the good of others. And I don't think he's simply meaning that we need to set aside a certain amount of month to meet people's physical needs. That that may be a good idea. That could be a good application here. 
But I think this, is, this goes a little bit beyond just meeting people's physical needs. And I see that because when we're in verse 9, we go back to that statement that seemed a little bit odd. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. Again, same term, that mammon, that we, money that's there in verse 13. So that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. The idea here is this, this eternal welcoming, this eternal recognition that when, when life is over, when it's failed, it's all said and done. There's a, there's a receiving, just as the wicked man would be received by those people whose debts were forgiven. There's this receiving. So what does that mean? I, I think there's two implications. One, I think that Jesus is helping us to understand and remember that we as a family, we as a group of believers should make sure that we are taking care of our brothers and sisters in Christ. If you look in the book of Acts in the very beginning, it said no one had need because as people had need, the church was taking care and helping to meet that need. And so as we as a family, we go together, we're together in eternity with Jesus. We welcome one another. I think there's an implication that we are taking care of those who are believers. But I also think that there's an implication that we are generous and kind to those who are not believers. And we know that as we meet people's needs and we take care of those who aren't of the family of faith, that as we do that, it opens a door with an opportunity for us to tell them about the one who can meet all of their needs, their deepest needs, the spiritual needs in their life. And we're able to share the hope of the gospel with them. And that they would hopefully then place their faith in Christ. And when we get to eternity, they will be there with us because our generosity opened a door for us to be gospel people, to tell them about Jesus. I think this idea of welcoming to eternal dwellings helps us to see both of these that are really important. So how do we apply this? You know, I mean, that, that's what we're looking for, right? I mean, yeah. Maybe, maybe y'all are more spiritual than I am. We read the Bible like, okay, so what do I do with this? What do, what do I do with this? And I think there's some really good applications here. I think there's some things, there's some big ideas that are good, and then there's some specific things that help us. Um, first off, first I want to say this. There's a danger when you talk about this. There's, there's really a danger to swinging a pendulum too far. Because some people, they'll hear something like this and they say, okay, well, all right, so what this means is, is I've got I've to sell everything that I've got and give it to the poor. Or I've got to make sure that I just, I just won't eat for three weeks and I'll just give it to help somebody out or do, or, or, you know, my kids, they haven't had clothes in four years and they're way too small, but they'll be okay. It's all right. They're just shorts, not pants anymore. It's, it's fine. Um, and, and sometimes we can, we can get too far. We can... We, we, we have the right intentions. We want to be faithful, but then we can swing it too far. Um, we have to remember that we have to take care of the needs of our family. I mean, earlier this week, 1 Timothy 5, 8, we read this. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for the members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse, denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So, so this doesn't mean it's like, okay, I got a family. My kids won't eat so I can be generous to other people. That, that's not what it means. So we want to be careful we don't swing it too far. But secondly, I think what it should really do is drive us to ask ourselves a question. And that question is this. Does our lifestyle keep us from being generous? Does my lifestyle keep me from being generous? And what I mean by that is this. Sometimes it is very easy to confuse wants and needs. You know, 
We all need the newest iPhone when it comes out, right? We need that. We need a second house at the beach. We, we need all of these things. And I'm not saying that having a new iPhone is wrong or having a second house at the beach is wrong. I'm not saying that. But sometimes we will say that is a need when maybe it's a want. And sometimes then to keep that lifestyle up, we are unable to be generous and unable to help other people because of all the stuff we have to keep in our life. We have to be real careful. We live in a society that is constantly putting before us the newest, the biggest, and the best. We're spending $100, $200, $300 on something. It's really put out as the best deal, no big, no big thing. We have to be careful. And, and one of the best questions we can take from this is, is my lifestyle so important to me that it's keeping me from being generous? If so, it may, very well may reveal that those things in your life are an idol, has been put in the place of God. Because we will sacrifice for it, but not for God. I, I just really think this drives us to, to think about this questions. Um, do we have an eternal perspective when it comes to money? Third thing is this. We need to truly search our hearts and see if our security and satisfaction is in things and money or if it's in Jesus and eternity with him. Do you notice in verse 9 that Jesus doesn't say, if your money fails? He says, when your money fails? Your money will fail you at some point in time in life. You cannot buy your way out of death. You cannot buy your way out of every problem. You cannot buy your way out of every heartbreak. It doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank. It will ultimately, in the end, fail you. But Jesus never will. And what Jesus holds out is not, well, just be the poorest person probable, possible, and then one day you'll get to just kind of hang out in heaven. What Jesus says is, use the money that I entrust to you now and know that as you are doing that, you are laying up riches and treasures in heaven. And let's not just sweep that under the rug as mere spiritualization or something to make us feel better so that, well, I'm giving it all away, but at least I got something in heaven. Do you understand? Jesus is saying when you get to heaven, there will be treasure there because your heart has been changed by the gospel and you're not living for money, you're living for him. And the God of the universe will welcome you into heaven and say, look what is laid up for you. Let us not exchange that for a bank account. I'm not going to exchange dirt for mounds of pure gold. And that's what Jesus holds out for us. Let us turn our eyes to that and let that be our motivator because we've been changed by the gospel and the one who has given us all will give us blessings for eternity in his presence. I said that this kind of goes through all four of the passages and I want to close with an example of somebody who I think in a way shows how in a very specific instance this was lived out in somebody's life. You know, we I quoted some of the Proverbs passages. We looked at 1 Timothy. We read in Luke 16. 
But the other passage we're reading is Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah is in the Old Testament. Uh, If you don't know anything about Nehemiah, Nehemiah was a captive when the the nation of Judah was conquered and taken away. Nehemiah rose to the position of being the cupbearer to the king, which means he was very trusted. He was the guy who made sure that nobody poisoned the king's wine. So that's a pretty significant position. He was there. He heard about Jerusalem, how it was broken down. And he just, he, he was very sad and in very, he felt God wanted him to. And in boldness, he asked the king if he could go rebuild a city. The king said yes, gave him all the money, gave him letters, gave him everything, sent him off there. He's rebuilding the city, faced a little bit of opposition. He's staying faithful to God. Eventually, he becomes the governor of the entire province. God's hands just really on him. And this is what it says in Nehemiah 5. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all of this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy for this people." I hope you hear what Nehemiah is saying there. Nehemiah was appointed governor, and part of the the right of the governor under the rule of Artaxerxes was that the people in that land would pay for their daily food allowance. Not just his, but everybody, all of his servants, everybody around him. And so Nehemiah could have rightly said, this is my due as governor, you need to give it, and it would, there wouldn't have been anything wrong about that, except that Nehemiah understood by doing so, he put a tremendous burden on the people. So instead of exacting money from them so he could pay for his food, he dipped into his own pockets and paid for his own food, but not only his own food, but for 150 people who ate with him and all the people from the surrounding nations who came. And it was a feast, constantly. Why did he do that? Why did he do that? Well, it's because of verse 15. Because of the fear of God. God was more important to him than money. God was more important than the fact that to feed all this many people meant that everything he had was going down, 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 down. Why? He knew because he loved God that he needed to care for the people around him. Not just take from them. Numai is an example of someone in a very specific situation who lived this out. Now, I highly doubt, and I'm not aware of any of you that are governors that can exact a food stipend from anybody around here. So that may not apply exactly in your life. But because you fear the Lord and you love Him, when opportunities come for you to be generous and care for people, to be a giver instead of a taker, will you be ready to step in? Not because, well, that's just what good people do or or because that's what the sermon said, but because Jesus turned his face to Jerusalem 
endured scorn and shame and gave himself fully for us that we might be redeemed and we might follow his example first and foremost. You see, this really comes out of a heart that's been changed by the gospel. If you do this because you're trying to be a good person or you're doing this because you want God to love you more, it's going to backfire on you. Christians, you don't do this to earn anything. You do this because of what Jesus has already given you. And so we have this perspective because Jesus has changed our hearts. So I would say, if you've got a wrong heart about money, pray that God would change it and allow you to be generous. And if you are already generous, and I know there's some very generous people sitting in this room, if you are already generous, pray that God would guard your heart against the love of money that would keep you from continuing in obedience. And always remember, the only way it's pleasing to God is from a heart that has placed its faith in Jesus and trust in the gospel, not in good works. Let's pray. Father, you are good and righteous and wonderful, and you have given us more than we can imagine. And the promise of riches for all eternity are great and wonderful. May we never take that and spiritualize it and make it so it's trivial because, God, it is real and it is good. And, Father, if we have hearts that are thinking wrongly about money, I pray, Father, you would change those and you would give us a right understanding and a right thinking and that you would, for the glory of your name and for our good, make within us a heart that longs to serve you in the way we speak, in the way we treat other people, and in the way we look at our money. We love you and ask it in Christ's name.